Let's now open our Bibles once again to the pastoral epistles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, as we continue to work our way through 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, in the order of writing. Chapter 4, our focus will be on verses 11 through 16, but I would like to begin with the first verse so that we recall the entirety of the context. Let's pray before reading. Our Father, we are earnest in our prayer, for we come before you as helpless, hopeless in and of ourselves. Our hope is only in Christ, and the hope of those who are gathered here this morning can only be in union with Jesus. And so we ask that your people will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we open our hearts to the Word of God and ask that you will convince and convert and change and grow us. But we pray especially for those who may be in our midst who do not know the Lord Jesus and pray that you will grant faith and repentance through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit that Someone walking in today lost may walk out saved, knowing the Savior. And as we turn to this text and see how you would order your church, we pray that we will see the importance of this, submitting our minds and hearts to it, as Christians indeed, sons and daughters of the living God, through faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now at verse 11 we come to this morning's text. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, But set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will say both yourself and your hearers. Now, you might say, 
The Apostle Paul is addressing a young minister, Timothy, and so I don't have to be terribly concerned about what I've read this morning or what's being preached. Not so fast. It is God's Word. It is here for all of us as God's people to learn and from which to benefit. In addition to that, there is much here that is applicable to everyone, whether called to the ministry of the Word or not. All of us in some setting or others or other will serve people with the Word of God. And then, especially this, every one of us is called to be careful, to learn the truth, know the truth, pass it on, and to be concerned that no man ever fills the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in generations to come that does not believe the things that are in God's Word and are revealed to Timothy in this passage. Never shall there be, by the grace of God, a minister in this pulpit who is careless about what ministry of the Word is unless this congregation as a whole becomes careless about what the ministry of the Word is. You will remember that the Apostle Paul spent three years building up the church of Ephesus, and now Timothy is left there while Paul is doing ministry in Macedonia. He had already told the Ephesian elders back in the 20th chapter of Acts, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul tells us in the first verses of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy that false doctrine is demonic in its origin. He tells us that we must pass on to faithful men the truth so that those men may teach others also. And I am responsible for this. The ruling elders and deacons are responsible for this. But you also have a responsibility in this. Every single one of you is responsible for this. I don't know if you've read the recent uh, statistics about religion in England Because my son is there, of course, I take a great interest in what is happening, and I would be interested in any case, but especially because of that. The recent census data shows that um, one in ten young persons in Britain, I think below the age of 25, is a Muslim. Most young people do not claim allegiance to any religious perspective at all. And most of those in England who say that they are Christians are over 60 years of age. Now, I realize that it's only the Spirit of God that can open the heart, convert the heart, and change that situation, but I also know that the Lord has told us in the Scriptures that that He uses His ordained means for converting the lost and spreading His gospel and preserving His church. Somewhere along the line, the Church of England dropped the ball, folks. Somewhere along the line, they gave up on being sure that those who fill their pulpits really believe the truth, would preach it faithfully and soundly, and would pass it down to the next generation. And don't think that it cannot happen here in this church. It's happened time after time after time. We see evidence all around us, not only in England, not only on the continent, but in our country as well. You and I are responsible to know what this text teaches and to be sure, insofar as it is within us, that the word is passed on in this congregation. 
Now, the Apostle Paul has been dwelling upon what it means to be a minister of the gospel. And last week we saw in verses 6 through 10 that a minister is someone who teaches sound doctrine, pursues godly living, you remember the gymnasium illustration, and who works hard and hopefully in the church. Now, as we come to verses 11 through 16, Paul speaks to Timothy and tells him how to have an effective ministry. Now, he doesn't tell him how to have a ministry that everybody around him might think is effective. He doesn't tell this pastor, this young pastor, how to have a ministry that is going to be successful in worldly ways, but he tells him how to have a biblically effective ministry. And as he moves into this, he first of all focuses upon the minister's public ministry and his commitment to it. So that's first, the minister's public ministry. How is the minister to have an effective ministry? Well, Timothy, you're going to have an effective ministry by focusing upon your public ministry of the Word of God. And so he begins in verse 11 by saying, command and teach these things. Now there's a note of authority here. This young man, Timothy, is to stand before this congregation and he is to command and teach these things. These verbs are imperatives. One means continue charging or command. The other means teaching. They're present tenses implying continuous obligation, continue charging or commanding, continue teaching these things. Don't give up on it. And what is he to command and teach? Well, these things. What things? The sort of things that Paul has already been expounding in this book. Avoid silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. Nurture yourself on the words of the faith and sound doctrine a warning that apostasy is coming and how we are to live in a world of apostasy. Or, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In other words, the whole counsel of God. Whatever the Apostle Paul has been teaching Timothy, Timothy is to take into the pulpit and he is to proclaim to the people there. He is to command and teach these things. But now... This is a young man, and there is a problem here because he is to command and teach, and yet evidently there are some who aren't so ready to receive the ministry of a young man. And so he goes on as he speaks of public ministry, and he says to this young pastor, command respect by your life. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Now, as I've said, Timothy was a young man. What was his age? Well, we don't know for sure. By our standards, he might not be considered a young man. He accompanied Paul in his second missionary journey, which was around 50 AD. This letter to Timothy is written around 63 AD. So if Timothy was a man of, say, 16 or 17 years old on the second journey, which is a guess, then he's in his early 30s. If he was older, he may even be in his late 30s. But the term youth that is used here, neotetas, was used in the ancient world until a man reached around age 40. So some of you guys are still pretty young by ancient standards. That's how this culture viewed youth. 
Don't let anyone, he says, look down upon, literally in the Greek text, it says, don't let anyone think down upon your youth. Now, when I was a very young minister, I had an older minister tell me, David, nobody's going to listen to you until you're 30. Well, there were exceptions, I think. The Word of God was proclaimed, I did my best, and God's Spirit blessed, but I got his point, and I think really it was 50, but, uh, <clears throat> but uh, I get his point. That's what Paul is doing with this young man, Timothy, here. He's addressing him and saying, you are to command and teach, but I know you're a young man. Some people are going to be looking down upon your youth. So what can I do about this, Paul? Well, Timothy, here's what you can do. You can live a godly life. You can live a mature and godly life. You can live a life that is in advance of your years. You can begin to live the life that many saints in their old age live, but that we all are called upon to live no matter what our age may be. So again, look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We have another imperative here. Set an example. Literally, continue being a type. Continue being a model for other people. And day by day, show your consistency in speech, your conversation, in conduct, your habits among the people of God, in love, your self-sacrifice for God's people, in faith, your trust and reliance upon the promises of God, in purity as you pursue holiness of life. So that when other people see you living like this in your public ministry, the criticism of your youth will in large measure die away. And they will no longer see a young man, they will see a godly man who really loves Christ, really loves his people, and really loves the truth and preaches it faithfully. Will you pray that God will raise up such men in the church of Jesus Christ today? And when others see this, they will say, I want to hear that message because it's credible. Not because of this perfect man, but because of the perfect man to which godly living points, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the minister is to lead the way in this among the people of God. Just as we saw last week, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. The minister is to lead the way in this, but it's your responsibility too. Doesn't this speak to your heart as well? Shouldn't you also be in the Word? Shouldn't you be in prayer? Shouldn't you be living a godly life? Shouldn't you be stretching yourself and exercising yourself so that more and more, day by day, at home in the workplace, your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity shows forth? So it's no double standard, even though the minister is to lead the way in this life of godliness. And so as he focuses upon the public ministry of the word, he goes on to say, this is something that you must be devoted to, devoted to. And so we read in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Until I come, indicating undoubtedly that when Paul the Apostle arrives, he will have a different assignment for Timothy, perhaps sending him to some other place to minister. But he tells him you are to be faithful and devoted to the public reading of Scripture. 
Now, I don't, I don't think we understand how important that is in our day. We don't hear much of it in churches today, quite frankly, the public reading of the Word of God. But it's through that public reading of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit takes the Word and applies it to the heart. I remember the, the life of J.C. Ryle, that great Anglican minister of a day gone by, a faithful man who actually heard the Word of God in an Anglican service, and when he heard a scripture verse, God took it to his heart and converted him. Through the public reading of Holy Scripture. It forms the lives of our children. It keeps our focus upon the God of the Bible. It reminds us that there is an open book on the Bible because we are a people of God, a pilgrim people on the way, living under the authority of that book. That's why I open the Bible as we begin our services together, to remind us that we're under the authority of His Word. So if the minister is to be careful to publicly read the Word, then you also must be careful to hear the Word publicly read, to have a submissive heart to it, to delight in it, and to receive it personally. As Martin Luther said, all vital religion is in personal and possessive pronouns. For example, when you hear the pastor read or the elder When you pass through the water, I will be with you. Do you say, yes, Lord, that's for me. I'm passing through the water. You have promised to be with me. I am one of your covenant people. And so the public reading of the word is essential in our services. But he goes on in verse 13 and says, you must give yourself over to exhortation. And here is what scripture says. Now go do it. That's what Timothy is to say. He is to exhort, which includes warning and encouragement and counsel. And he is to give himself over, according to this verse, to teaching. Instruction that is based upon the exposition of the word of God because it matters what you believe. It matters deeply and desperately that you believe the truth. Now, the interesting thing about this The public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching is that in the Greek text, there's a definite article in front of each one of them. It is the public reading of Scripture. It is the exhortation. It is the teaching to which he is to give himself, each with a definite article, because this is the very stuff of his ministry, the very thing to which he is to be committed, the very issue to which he must give himself in public ministry. So would you have an effective ministry, young pastor? Here's how you do it. Command and teach these things. Command respect by your life. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. But now the Apostle Paul really goes for the heart. And he addresses this young pastor, and he says, there's something else. If you would have an effective ministry, Timothy, not only must you devote yourself to the public ministry to which you've been called, but you must give attention to your personal inner life. Now tell me, is this not also applicable to each of us sitting here as believers in Jesus? That if we wish to be faithful and if we wish to have an effective service to others, we must give our hearts to God? And we must open our hearts to him. So he says to the minister, you must must minister in such a way 
that the truth rushes from the boiler room of your heart, burning for Christ. Now, what does Paul say then about the inner life of the minister also applicable to us? He says to him, first of all, in verse 14, do not neglect your gift. Do not neglect your gift. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the charisma. The minister's gifts are from the Holy Spirit. Another present imperative, a command, do not neglect your gift. When Timothy was ordained, it symbolized the bestowing of this gift. And Hendrickson well says, do not grow careless about the gift that is in you. That gift or discernment between the true and the false and consequently of being able to exhort, teach, and guide, Timothy must employ to the best advantage. He must make use of it when he himself administers the word, and he must also exercise it when he tells others how to preach. He must never grow careless about it or neglect it. It is a precious charisma that is a special gift of God's grace bestowed upon him by the Holy Spirit. So, minister, would you have an effective ministry? Then you need to pay attention to that gift that has been given you, not neglect it, but stir it up. And by the way, each one of you as believers in Jesus as a part of the body of Christ also are given gifts of service, and you must not neglect to use those gifts either in the body of Christ. But then he says there's more. Timothy, if you're going to have an effective ministry, you must look to your heart and you must show your progress. Show your progress. Verse 15. Practice these things, devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. So the minister must be progressing. He must be a more faithful minister than he was 10 years ago. He must be a more godly man than he was 20 years ago. He must understand more of the truth than he did 15 years ago. He must show progress. And even though the progress is displayed, others see it as he ministers. It's all a matter of what goes on right down in the heart. Isn't it? Isn't your progress as a Christian a matter of the Spirit of God working and applying His Word in your heart? Show your progress. By not neglecting His gift of ministry, He shows the progress made since His ordination, and He is to practice, or the word may be translated, He must cultivate this in His life. And notice how He puts it there. He says in verse 15, practice these things. Now actually this is once again an imperative of the simple verb to be. It means be in these things. We might say be being in these things. Always be in these things. Keep on in these things. Stick to these things. Or as A.T. Robertson so beautifully paraphrased it, the minister is up to his ears in these things. Now, I understand exactly what he's saying. Some of you may pity my wife when I tell you that I often, I often will stay up late reading. I often will go to bed with a book in my hand. 
If we're on vacation, what do I do? I take books with me. I even write articles sometimes. I spend plenty of time with my wife, don't I? I hope. <laughs> but I'm reading that book. I'm thinking we're walking on a mountain stream. What comes to the mind? Hmm, illustration to preach to my people. You are up to your ears in these things. The minister is never out of them. And that's his call. The Martin Lloyd-Jones to see photographs of him vacationing with his family. He'd be, he'd be out on the beach dressed in his suit reading a book. <laughs> and then the afternoon, he'd get out and do something with his family. A minister has to be very, very careful not to neglect his family because he's always in these things. So that's, that's the thing. He's called to be in these things. And then Paul even more works his way down into the heart of this young pastor when he says, Timothy, if you're going to have an effective ministry, you need to to keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Again, the minister's call, you need to do that too. So we look at verse 16, keep a close watch watch, look at the text, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Which means the minister must prepare his life, his heart, his knowledge, his love of truth, his love of God's people, his conduct constantly. As John Owen the Puritan put it, no man preaches his sermon well to others if he doth not first preach the sermon to his own heart. I'm going to read something to you that Charles Spurgeon wrote. I think he'll benefit. He's addressing young pastors. He's talking about piety, godliness, watching yourself and your teaching. Spurgeon said this to these young pastors. Recollect, as ministers, that your whole life, your whole pastoral life especially, will be affected by the vigor of your piety. If your zeal grows dull, you will not pray well in the pulpit. You will pray worse in the family and worse in the study alone. When your soul becomes lean, your hearers, without knowing how or why, will find that your prayers in public have little savor for them. They will feel your barrenness, perhaps, before you perceive it yourself. Your discourses will next betray your declension. You may utter as well-chosen words and as fitly ordered sentences as aforetime, but there will be a perceptible loss of spiritual force. You will shake yourselves as at other times, even as Samson did, but you will find that your great strength has departed In your daily communion with your people, they will not be slow to mark the all-pervading decline of your graces. Sharp eyes will see the gray hairs here and there long before you do. Let a man be afflicted with a disease of the heart, and all evils are wrapped up in that one stomach, lungs, viscera, muscles, and nerves will all suffer. And so, let a man have his heart weakened in spiritual things... And very soon his entire life 
will feel the withering influence. Moreover, as the result of your own decline, every one of your hearers will suffer more or less. The vigorous amongst them will overcome the depressing tendency, but the weaker sort will be seriously damaged. The minister is the parish clock. Many take their time from him. And if he be incorrect, then they all go wrongly, more or less. And he is in great measure accountable for all the sin which he occasions. It will not bear a moment's comfortable consideration, and yet it must be looked at that we may guard against it. You must remember, too, that we have need of very vigorous piety because our danger is so much greater than that of others. Upon the whole, no place is so assailed with temptation as the ministry, despite the popular idea that ours is a snug retreat from temptation. It is no less true that our dangers are more numerous and more insidious than those of ordinary Christians. Man. Being a minister of the word and sacrament is serious. But you know what he says here is true of you too, isn't it? Let a person have his heart weakened in spiritual things, and very soon his entire life will feel the withering influence. Where are you in that? How does that speak to your heart? Is your godliness and piety vigorous? Or is your spiritual life withering? One Puritan spoke of a play back in ancient days in which an actor in Smyrna pronounced, Oh, heaven, in his play. But rather than pointing to heaven, pointed down. Oh, heaven, he said. Being a sophisticated hearer, he couldn't stay. He said he's spoken false Latin with his finger. So you and I may pronounce false Christianity with our lives. We may speak with the lips, oh, heaven, and we may say with our lives quite the opposite. So he says in verse 16, Persist in this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Why all of this emphasis that the minister must be a godly man? Why all of this emphasis that he must teach the truth? Why do I give so much concern? Jeff gives so much concern. Why does Christopher? Why do we give so much concern to doctrine? The Bible tells me that's my job. That's my calling. That's my responsibility. No matter where the church in our culture has gone. And then see this. Did you catch it? Look at verse 16 again. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. And then if it weren't here, you wouldn't believe it. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. God alone saves, but he saves by means, and it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. It's that serious. It's that serious for the minister, as was read this morning from Ezekiel 33, 
The minister who does not hold the truth before his flock will have blood on his hands. Think of it. Blood on his hands because he has withheld the truth. That's serious for the minister. But also that's serious for you who hears the minister. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. And this is the greatest reason that you should take heed to this text this morning. God saves through the application of redemption in Christ preached and believed. I wish I could underscore this with all of the feeling that's in my heart. But when I stand before you to preach Christ, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to be faithful to expound the text, I realize that everyone to whom I preach will spend an eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. That there are lost people, undoubtedly, who are numbered among my flock as well as lost people who gather here with us. But also, that salvation is not simply a matter of the past, but also a matter of the ongoing. And even though God has promised His people that He will keep us for time and eternity, He has appointed means for doing so, and the mean, primarily, is the proclamation of the Word of God And so every Sunday, I see myself as used of the Lord in leading you on to heaven. Persist in these things, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So all that the Apostle has been telling us in 1 Timothy and will tell us in Titus and 2 Timothy about good order in the church, that we Christians should be committed to a local body where the word of God is proclaimed, where there are elders, where there are deacons, where there is the general office of believer as we serve one another, and the minister of the word who reads and exhorts and teaches and proclaims the truth. It's all about the gospel, folks. It's all about Christ. It's all about salvation. This well-ordered church is the way in which God intends to extend the good news in the world and to keep His people in the way. And when the minister proclaims that gospel, it is a life and death matter. It's all about salvation. Paul says. You know the name Henry Martin? Young man, if I recall, died at age 31. Met Charles Simeon, faithful Anglican minister in Cambridge. Went to India, Persia, translated the scriptures into various languages and dialects. As I say, died at a young age. 
he had read the diary of David Brainerd, moved him to go and take the gospel to the lost and translate the scriptures. And his slogan was, let me burn out for God. Simeon had a portrait of his young friend, now dead, over his fireplace. And when he pastored there in Cambridge and people would come to see Pastor Simeon, he'd point to that portrait of Henry Martin. And he would say, I will not trifle. I will not trifle. Well, that's the way I think and feel by the grace of God and want to think and feel more and more in this great matter of proclaiming the truth, expounding the text, being faithful to what God has called me to do, I want to be a Timothy. I want to do what Paul told Timothy to do. I want to be a Paul. I want to use my gifts, whatever they may be, to be faithful in extending the good news. And I will not trifle. So it's all about salvation. And I lift up before you this morning the Savior who alone can save and redeem sinners. Remember, reject the ambassador's message and you are rejecting the king who sent the messenger and gave him the message to preach. But maybe there's someone here this morning and you say, Pastor, I hear you talking about salvation, but you just don't understand my case. I'm so bad. Yeah, I do understand your case. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I really do understand your case. I read of a man who went to a doctor. When he went to the doctor, he had a leg problem, hurt very badly, and he didn't think the doctor could do anything about it, but he went anyway. Sat down with his doctor. What's your problem? Well, it's my leg. Well... It's my leg, but I don't think you can do anything about it. So the doctor said, well, let me have a look. He looked at it and said, oh, I see the problem. I know exactly what it is, and I assure you I can do something about it. No, I don't think you can do anything about it, doctor. I assure you I can. Look, I have a case file filled with people who have had the very same problem, and I assure you I can do something about your leg. No, I don't think you can do anything about it. So if you are one of those this morning sitting out there and saying, I'm such a bad case, Christ can't save me, listen, I can assure you, I can assure you infinitely, infinitely greater than that doctor who could cure the leg. I can assure you, your case is not unique. He has saved many like you. He can save you. He can deliver you. He can remove your guilt. He can remove your sin. He can make you to be a son, a daughter of the living God. I assure you, he can save you. His case file is thick, growing thicker all the time. Come, you sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Come to Christ. He can save. He can redeem. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And God's people said...